Hong Kong handover anniversary. The crackdown on dissent that followed the 2019 protests was hard and fast and very consequential, especially for the kind of vibrant culture that Hong Kong has long had. Potential TikTok ban. In all of those hearings, you know, the TikTok executives who were there were really reluctant to say plainly what it has just admitted to, that TikTok user data is in fact being accessed in Beijing. Mapping Russia's conflict in Ukraine. After the first few weeks, that became very clear that that strategy wasn't one that was going to be really fruitful for them. And so from that, you've sort of seen a gradual regathering and shifting of that strategy into something that's a lot more similar to conventional warfare. This is Policy, Guns and Money, the Aspie podcast, with me, Olivia Nelson. Last week, it was the 25th anniversary of the British handover of Hong Kong, and China's President Xi Jinping travelled to Hong Kong to mark the occasion. Dr Alex Bristow speaks to Primrose Reardon about the significance of the anniversary, the changes she has seen in Hong Kong over her time reporting from the city, and the continuing impacts of the crackdown on dissent and the Hong Kong national security law. Primrose, really good to reconnect. I think we uh, knew each other a little when you used to work for the Australian covering the political beats here in in Canberra. Uh, And now, of course, you're the Financial Times correspondent in Hong Kong, although unusually, I think you're presently in Europe, having just stepped out of Hong Kong for a little. So great to talk to you. I was going to jump straight in. And first thing I wanted to ask was what you made of the 1st of July anniversary, marking, of course, the, the 25 years since Britain returned its colonial possession to China in 1997. What have we learned from the way that anniversary was marked? Yeah, it's obviously a hugely significant date for Beijing, which we saw with the visit from Xi Jinping to Hong Kong, despite the COVID situation. Obviously, China has been following the zero COVID policy and Xi Jinping hasn't left the mainland since the start of their pandemic, demonstrating the height of paranoia about the virus there and also the paranoia about protecting him from the virus. And obviously, there is quite a number of COVID cases in Hong Kong, hundreds a day, if not thousands. So it's it's a really big move that they still decided to send China's leader down to Hong Kong to mark the event. Obviously, the event really symbolised China's need to symbolically show their grip over the territory after an extremely tumultuous three years. In 2019, we saw the biggest pro-democracy protests that the territory's ever seen, which were really the biggest challenge to Chinese rule since Tiananmen. And that obviously then came up, after that came the pandemic, which really gutted the city as well and shook its reputation as a financial hub. So it's been such a um, tumultuous time. The What we learned from, I guess, from what how they marked it. So Xi Jinping gave two quite important speeches. In one of them, he suggested that would the one country, two system model would continue or could continue beyond 2047. So that model was enshrined after the, the 1997 handover, where we saw 
China agree to give Hong Kong a high degree of autonomy and allow it to have a lot of freedom of expression and a whole bunch of other promises to distinguish the territory from the rest of China. Obviously, we've seen a lot of that degraded and undermined by some of the actions that China's taken, especially in the last three years, but arguably before then, to really erode that. But there's still some infrastructural differences from Hong Kong, from the mainland, things like having a convertible currency, things like having a different legal system, which again has come under a lot of challenge in the last three years. But there is still differences, I guess. And so that is quite a significant possibility, that whole idea of that continuing beyond to 2047 when that autonomy was legally supposed to end. I guess the other thing that we saw was that the emphasis was on Hong Kong's importance as a financial hub. They launched a new scheme which would allow offshore investors access to better access to mainland interbank financial derivatives markets. And so we can see that the emphasis on the trip was on showing that Hong Kong still mattered to China in that way. And I guess lastly, we saw Xi Jinping had a sort of brief brush with COVID where he was photographed nearby a lawmaker who actually ended up testing positive for COVID. So again, you know, you can see the sort of risks that he faced in coming to the territory, but definitely a hugely significant moment for um, both the city and for Beijing. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, maybe some simmering discontent still in in Hong Kong that was uh, playing into his decision not to hang around for too long. I mean, you mentioned the inauguration of, of John Lee, and I think the last time Xi Jinping came to Hong Kong was five years ago for the inauguration of John Lee's predecessor, Carrie Lam, wasn't it? Um, So some sort of five-year schedule that he sees keeping. And and if if he does go on and on, I guess, at at the head of the party, maybe we'll see him in five years' time again. But um, you also mentioned the the, the 50-year commitment after which I think in theory it would be possible to close one country, two systems, although she is is indicating that it might go on beyond 2047. And I think we're we're obviously at the halfway point with this 25th anniversary, but I I know that, that China refutes that it has, I think, that legal obligation under the 1984 treaty that it signed with the with the British to maintain rights and freedoms and a high degree of autonomy for, for 50 years. I noticed that there's some sort of debate now about whether or not they ever ceded sovereignty to Britain in the first place. So that there's anything mm. worth saying about that. Yeah, I mean, we obviously saw the um, textbooks from schools change to deny British colonialism and that sort of thing. I mean, I think it's also a technical matter, but I think that essentially there's a, a greater effort going on in Hong Kong more broadly to sort of redraw the narrative around the origins of Hong Kong. There's also a huge history project which is underway to sort of write these new history books about the origins in order to reject the narrative that the British built Hong Kong and re-establish China's hold over Hong Kong. So I guess you can see it within that broader context. But yes, it's definitely, as with many things, in a sort of growing international power such as China, it's obviously trying to redraw that broader narrative. Great. Primoz, I wanted to move on perhaps to how it feels on the ground in Hong Kong, you know, where you, you normally are, and you're obviously picking up all those vibes. How are people feeling? Are they making plans for the future? 
I mean, you've written recently about some of the heartrending stories about individuals, including some of the detained opposition politicians who potentially could, could die in jail. But, but just for the everyday people on the ground in Hong Kong, how are they feeling and what are their views of the future? Yeah, that's a really good question. The crackdown on dissent that followed the 2019 protests was hard and fast and very consequential, especially for the kind of vibrant culture that Hong Kong has long had. And not only has it had this really strong political culture where we've seen, you know, obviously during the protests, millions on the streets, but also just around lots of general things that people would protest against or make their voices heard. But also, you know, I guess more also just local culture around lots of other things. And I think what we saw is that the speed in which so many things became red lines or red lines that people weren't even really aware of just happened so quickly. And I think that they had, you know, this, it's sort of like the ground really shifted under people's feet in such a fast, hard and fast way that it really changed the atmosphere in the city. Just one example is I just remember before the national security law came into place, you know, so many little shops would have little kind of protest stickers or kind of like various little illustrations that they'd put up or little decorations which suggested their support for the protest movement or that sort of thing. And, and I just remember the day after that, just everyone just took it all down. And it was just sort of this kind of clearing of the city. And I think that since then, it has had this muted feel, which has obviously been exacerbated by the pandemic and the restrictions and the sense that the city has been really, um, you know, I guess, boarded off from the rest of the world with these pandemic policies to follow the mainland where they've had installed this weeks long quarantine Now it's only a week, but it's still definitely a sense that the city is sort of a bubble away from the rest of the world, despite having COVID cases at the moment. So it's definitely a muted feel. And I think that there is a big sense of loss. And you could say, okay, yes, there's people who do support the government. And yes, there are definitely. But when we saw the only direct elections, which were council elections a little while ago now, but they were before Beijing changed the electoral system to completely disallow that. You know, we did see massive support for the opposition. So there's definitely is a sense of loss in terms of those freedoms that Hong Kongers, I guess, up until recently enjoyed without the threat of prosecution or without the threat of, you know, crossing this national security law that was installed as part of that crackdown. So there's definitely that sense. In terms of how people are reacting, you know, on the one hand, we've had a exodus of residents also of obviously of a lot of expats as well because of the quarantine measures but we've also seen a load of locals either choose to take up migration schemes such as the British National Overseas Scheme which the UK has launched and which has been taken up quite strongly with over 100,000 applicants and many more than that renewing their passports so that they're able to get access to migration to the UK People are migrating to Canada, Australia, or various other places. So there is a big migration going on for people who believe that, you know, A, they might not really want to really see that Hong Kong has changed in a significant way or are just taking up the opportunity. But obviously the city has has changed in a big way and 
that's definitely one way people are reacting. Others, I guess, who are deciding to stay and waiting out this period. And that's definitely the case with business. It's, I mean, obviously with all these huge political changes that have happened, sort of overshadows the fact that obviously the main thing for the city is its role as a financial hub. And so a lot of, you know, business people are sort of waiting out this change and hoping that event, it would still be a place that's friendly towards business. But there's definitely a, a muted feel, I would say. A muted feel. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sure that's a good description. I think we've probably only got time for one more question, Primrose. There's so much more we could talk about. I mean, you touched there on the, the number of people who are taking up visa avenues to leave uh, Hong Kong. Presumably that's going to have a a long-term effect and potentially you've got a group of people there that are quite critical of the Chinese Communist Party that will be living overseas and criticising it from Australian, British and other shores for some time yet. We haven't perhaps had the opportunity to drill into some of the other actions that the the West has, has taken since what's happened with the national security law and since. But the question I wanted to end on, if, if, if you don't mind, is about journalism. You are a journalist and I wonder what it's like being a Western journalist in Hong Kong and is there any hope for a local independent media, I think, you know, the South China Morning Post and the Hong Kong Free Press seem to act, act still with a degree of an independent voice, if you think that's fair. Have they got any future? So what, you know, what is the future for journalism in Hong Kong? Yeah, I think it's a really tough time for press freedom. We've seen a number of moves that the authorities have taken to shut down or intimidate local outlets into shutting down. The most obvious one has been the Apple Daily, but there's been many more than that that have decided to shut down after threats or intimidation. And we've also seen journalists, including from the Apple Daily, prosecuted. So it's definitely a time when there's a lot of fear and There's still, as you say, there's still journalists trying to operate. There's online outlets trying to continue to cover things like politics. It's still not quite the same, exactly the same as mainland China in that obviously there's still some room for some of these outlets. As you mentioned, Hong Kong Free Press is still offering that independent news. I think that it remains to be seen what the future is, especially since we've seen that drumbeat of closures and also of prosecutions, including of people, you know, columnists who you wouldn't necessarily see as necessarily being such an obvious target. And I think that creates this, yeah, I mean, I mean, it, it goes back to the sense that is all across the entire city, this sort of sense of fear and of looking over your shoulder and of considering whether or not, you know, this is safe, is this safe for me, is this safe for me and my family as well, and the consequences for that. And I think that that's that's definitely something that weighs on Hong Kong journalists' minds. There has definitely been, you know, a sense that there's sort of less coverage of some of these important things and that's sort of less accountability in terms of the government, especially when we've seen that the government and the legislature have been taken over by patriots and loyalists to Beijing. So there's definitely a very, very rocky future and definitely a sense that press freedom has really gone down. And I think that while people will try to keep that up from abroad, it obviously won't be the same. So I think that's all we've got time for, Primrose, but thank you very much. And a slightly depressing note to finish on, but thanks very much for making the time today. 
Thank you so much for having me. In a letter to the CEOs of Apple and Google, the Commissioner for the United States Federal Communications Commission has called for TikTok to be removed from app stores, citing security concerns. Barney Graywell speaks to Fergus Ryan about TikTok's owner ByteDance, its ties to the Chinese government, and the accessibility of users' data by Chinese staff. Fergus, you co-authored a report on TikTok in 2020. Now it's back in the news. Why? Well, just a few weeks ago, BuzzFeed published a bombshell report based on over 80 leaked recordings of internal meetings at TikTok in the United States. And those recordings made it really clear that TikTok is actually, in fact, sending user data back to China. So, you know, the report included uh, quotes from TikTok employees saying things like, everything is seen in China, and one director referring to a Beijing-based engineer as a, quote, master admin who has access to everything. And so BuzzFeed have they have these internal recordings, they've got screenshots and documents. Basically, TikTok was caught red-handed. And how has this news been received? Well, not long after the report came out, um, Brendan Carr, who is a commissioner at the Federal Communications Commission, um, came out and called on the CEOs of Apple and Google to remove TikTok from their app stores. And do you think or can we expect that will actually happen? I, As far as I can tell, I don't think that that's actually likely. For a start, the FCC doesn't oversee app stores, so it's not really their purview. And then on top of that, the politics of this is interesting. Brendan Carr, the commissioner who came out um, and called on those CEOs to take TikTok off their app stores, he's a Trump appointee and in the FCC... Most of his colleagues are Democrats. It's controlled by the Democrats. And it's unclear at the moment what their position on this is. So it's not just one FCC commissioner who has, you know, shone a light on TikTok in recent weeks, is it? Tell us about the letter from the nine Republican senators. So, yeah, again, we've we've seen this letter come out from nine Republican senators. It was curious to me that This isn't more of a bipartisan issue, but nonetheless, nine Republican senators sent a letter to TikTok and they asked them a series of very specific questions. The first of which was pretty much, do China-based employees have access to US users' data? And how did TikTok respond to that? Well, TikTok admitted it. So this is the first time that they admitted it? Well, yes and no. I've actually this week been going through the videos and transcripts of all the hearings that TikTok executives have taken part in in the past few years. So there was one that started off in the UK and then a couple of days later there was a hearing here in Australia and subsequently there's been a hearing at Congress in the United States. And in all of those hearings... You know, the TikTok executives who were there were really reluctant to say plainly what it has just admitted to, that TikTok user data is, in fact, being accessed in Beijing. But the thing is, this bombshell report from BuzzFeed, as 
fantastic as it is, we really didn't need to have that report because if you rewind everything back two years ago when we wrote our report here at Aspie, we made it very clear drawing on documents and statements from TikTok executives that if you read them carefully, they have actually been admitting this whole time that TikTok user data is accessible in Beijing. And that's something that we outlined pretty plainly in our 2020 report. And why is it so important that TikTok is accessing user data in China? Well, you know, TikTok has long maintained that they would never hand over user data to the authorities in China if they were asked. But the fact is they wouldn't be asked. They would be told. And so it's very important that everyone very carefully passes the talking points that TikTok executives put out. They say things like, we would never hand over user data to the Chinese government, and even if they asked us, we wouldn't. But that's simply not how it works. We know now, even more than before, that TikTok user data is accessed in Beijing And we also know that because of the suite of national security laws that are in place in China, that data can therefore be accessed by the authorities in China. And it just comes down to this basic point that ByteDance can't realistically refuse any request from the authorities in China for that data. And if they did request that data, the company would be required by law to assist the authorities. And then importantly, they would be legally prevented from speaking publicly about it. So Fergus, given what we know now and what Aspie revealed in 2020, what is your assessment and how to deal with TikTok and its parent company, ByteDance? Is an outright ban on TikTok going too far? But really, what can we do in the short term if a ban is not the way to go? I've always been of the opinion that an outright ban should never be off the table. It should always be a possibility, especially when you look at this intransigence and stubbornness from TikTok executives to just speak plainly about what is actually going on here. It has been very clear that there are some fundamental questions that people have about this app. One, Is data being accessed in Beijing? Is TikTok user data going to China? They have danced around that question for years now. Another really basic question, is TikTok part of a family of companies that is ultimately based in China? That's a really basic question, but it's one that TikTok executives have danced around Nonstop. I mean, I'd recommend to our listeners to check out the exchange between the Republican Senator Ted Cruz and the TikTok executive at the hearing in Congress, where the senator is returning to this basic question Is TikTok connected to? ByteDance and some of its related companies in Beijing. Even a simple question like that, we couldn't get a straight answer. So 
you know, I think in that context, we need to make sure that all of the policy tools that we have are at our disposal, and that includes a ban. But I do, on the other hand, think that, you know, an outright ban is too much of a, a blunt tool. And we've already seen what happens when you try and deploy that as a policy solution. So we saw former President Donald Trump essentially try to do that by issuing an executive order in August 2020. But it soon became apparent that that executive order, because it seemed like it was quite hastily written, it got caught up in the courts in the United States. And eventually the Trump Commerce Department backed off a possible ban on TikTok in in November 2020, citing a federal court order. So that blunt approach, I think, just created more problems in the end. So to answer your question, you know, what we said at the time when we wrote our report in 2020 and and what I, I still believe today is that what we need is an approach that doesn't necessarily single out apps like TikTok or WeChat, which was the other app that we were looking at in that report, and treat them in any particular way because of where they're from. What we need to do is to introduce regulations that put certain requirements on all of these social media apps. And, you know, one issue that's often lost in these discussions that we're having about TikTok is the information operations and propaganda and the potential for TikTok to be used to sort of influence the the discourse that we have in, in our democracy. That issue is ignored while everyone focuses on this question of is data going back to China and the sort of the surveillance piece of the question. But, you know, I think that if we looked at TikTok and tried to determine what they're doing to identify information operations that are taking place on the app, that will put TikTok in a a very difficult position because as we've demonstrated with multiple reports out of Aspie, there are a lot of information operations coming from China and other countries that are actively taking place on Twitter, on YouTube, on Facebook. So why wouldn't it be happening on TikTok? And when is TikTok going to do things like, for example, label state-affiliated media on TikTok? We've already seen them. We've seen some movement there. So after Putin's invasion of Ukraine, TikTok has labelled some Russian state-affiliated media but they haven't done it about Chinese state-affiliated media yet. So I think, you know, we need to have an approach that says all social media platforms need to do this type of thing. They need to label state-affiliated media. They need to be transparent with data sets that reveal information operations that are taking place on their platforms. And once that's a requirement for all platforms, I think... You know, platforms like TikTok are going to be in a bit of a a tight situation 
because on the one hand, they will have to comply with the new regulations, but on the other hand, the Chinese Communist Party, which has a huge amount of leverage over them, is not going to be happy about that. Since Russia's invasion of Ukraine in February, Nathan Russo has been mapping the movements on the ground and changes in territorial control. Late last month, I asked Nathan to share how he goes about mapping these movements, including challenges with verification and the changing focus of the map as the conflict goes on. Nathan, thanks so much for joining us on the pod today. Yeah, thanks for having me. So Russia's war in Ukraine recently passed the four-month mark, and since the invasion of Ukraine, you've been mapping the movement of Russia's troops and changes in territorial control with regular map briefings. Can you tell us a little bit about how you do this and how you verify the changes that are happening on the ground? Well, sometimes it's tricky. Generally, we sort of use two or three different sources. So firstly, there's the reports of what's happening on the ground, and that's always a good baseline to start off of. But then you've also got to learn the limits of that and what can be trusted and what can't be trusted. Um, So then what I'd say is actually probably the most useful is geolocated footage. So because, I mean, Ukraine, the war in Ukraine is a war happening in the 21st century, there's hours and hours of footage coming out showing the conflict and showing what's happening there. And essentially, very often we can tie these particular videos to a particular place and therefore sort of assert that one particular side has a control in this area. Another thing that often helps is satellite imagery. For example, this has been a war that's been, at least in the recent weeks, heavily contested by artillery rather than sort of small ambushes and manoeuvres like in the start of the war. And so because of that, basically all of the major positions you can see being quite heavily bombarded through satellite imagery. And so drawing that all together, you sort of get this network of places where you know that a certain force has a presence in and then you can sort of just connect those all together to form this this broader map. It's amazing. So what what are some of the challenges you face in mapping the movements? You talk about the geolocated footage. Is that is that difficult to verify? And, and yeah, especially in heavily contested cities like Severodonetsk, for example. Yeah. So in some examples, I think there's there's often not enough information to really map it in the scale that a lot of people try to map it in. So if you look at Severodonetsk on um like a lot of the news channels, they'll, they'll, get, they'll bring up maps of the thing that show sort of the city split down the middle at the moment. And basically, I think in most cases, there's not enough real information to get that firm idea of control street by street, block by block. Um, so that is one of the problems. And for example, you know how I was talking about pulling those strong points together. When you look at the landscape, sort of, you can see that this village is a strong point, this position is a strong point, and you can connect those together. Whereas in a city, in an urban area, basically every building, every single structure could be. So there's a lot more like unknowns between the data points that you have. I guess another challenge is sometimes there's quite variable reliability in a lot of the reports coming out. So, for example, I mean, it's no, no news that Russian media is not always the most reliable on this. But even in recent weeks, especially when sort of the news of the week isn't so good for Ukraine, you sort of see Ukraine exaggerating the truth in some ways so that at certain times their reporting becomes less reliable as well and you've got to sort of learn how to gauge what seems possible what seems valid and then try and verify that through other footage so it's almost like you know the, the information environment is, is an additional kind of layer that you have to yeah, that you have to navigate sure. in verifying 
So as I mentioned, the conflict has now passed the four-month mark. What changes have you seen over the course of the war and how have the strategies of Russia and Ukraine changed and, and what are your thoughts, I guess, on the reporting of the war? You've already touched on this a little bit, but I'm interested in you know, maybe sources outside of Ukraine. Yeah, I think it's very obvious to see how the sort of goals and the strategy that Russia put forth to start with have really drastically shifted. So originally what you were sort of seeing was them sending small manoeuvre teams of a couple of armoured vehicles and a few, a few, a bit of infantry as long, basically as far as they could get into Ukraine, sort of trying to just get to the cities, thunder run into all these places, I guess have boots on the ground in these cities for when they expected the Ukrainian government to fall. After not many days, but after the first few weeks, that became very clear that that strategy wasn't one that was going to be really fruitful for them. And so from that you've sort of seen a gradual regathering and shifting of that strategy into something that's a lot more similar to conventional warfare. And so you've had these manoeuvres that have sort of almost turned into this attritional warfare with artillery and in many ways it now looks a lot more like what you'd expect a war in like the First World War or the Second World War to look like than it does in um, what we expect from modern warfare. It's not like patrols going into enemy territory and being secure. It's basically front lines with inches of territory gained via like the use of very heavy artillery. And that's a big contrast to earlier in the war. And I guess it's it's also contrary to what a lot of strategic analysts, you know, predicted. Mm. And following on from that, NATO's Secretary General uh, in recent weeks, Jen Stoltenberg, he met with President Biden at the White House. He told reporters that we need to be prepared for a long-term conflict in Ukraine, as it does now turn into a war of attrition. From your analysis of the changes, what do you see as the long-term trajectory of the war? It's hard to talk about the short term, let alone the long term, but I think what it comes down to is the fact that Russia has really lost a lot of its offensive power. You sort of see them making occasional and periodic breakthroughs of a few kilometres on the front line, but in the grand scheme of the scale of Ukraine, that, that's nothing. And they've really lost their ability to really push Ukrainian forces out of their territory. But contrarily, you see the same with Ukraine. Ukraine is sort of tied up in defending these front lines and really doesn't have the manpower or the equipment to solidly push Russia, at least with how comparatively well-equipped Russia is now. So that, so I think in many ways it's, it's going to be quite stable for a while. There, there definitely is at some point where attrition will start to affect both sides more. And so, for example, Russia might have less artillery or less tanks. You're already seeing them fielding quite old tanks. But the short answer is Ukraine's not going to accept the loss of 25% of their territory and I don't think Russia's about to withdraw back to the borders. So it is going to be long and drawn out. It's just, I think, a matter of the tempo of this conflict going forward and whether it sort of stays a mostly frozen front line or whether that there is sort of continuous harassment and offensives into the other country's control. And I guess part of that, you know, we had the Ukraine's ambassador to Australia recently speak at Aspie and, you know, he made it very clear how Australia and, and, and other partners and allies can help um, Ukraine. So I guess part of the, the attrition and, and, and I guess the long-term trajectory of the war also depends on that. You met the ambassador and, you know, he told you that, you know, President Zelensky, other senior European officials, are, they're, they're watching your maps, they're sharing them. How did it feel? <laughs> I think especially on that first point, I, one thing that always jumps out to me when I think about Ukraine is how basically the, the Soviet stocks of artillery in Europe have been run dry. And so now Ukraine's sort of shifting to that NATO standard from the Soviet standard. And that sort of highlights how much reliance there is on continued military aid. 
I think it's always good to be recognised for the maps. I think especially in the early days there was a big... There was a trend when you looked at maps to, that showed sort of any territory that Russia had been anywhere near as under their control. And I think that was something that was quite frustrating to Ukrainians as a, as a nation and the government especially because it sort of there was no re-control for a lot of these areas. But when you looked at CNN, you, when you looked at a lot of the maps that were going around, they showed sort of huge echelons of, Ukra- of Russian forces going deep into Ukraine just because they'd sort of passed a tank through there a, f- a couple of weeks ago. So I think early on it was, I, I was conscious of that and sort of in, when I was mapping, I was sort of aware that the realities on the ground don't necessarily map, match the easily mapped drawer shape on a map showing control. And I think, I think generally that, that was a bit more reflective of what was happening on the ground, but it was also quite, I think, appreciated by Ukrainian officials because it sort of did show it through a different dimension that they had issue with a lot of how it was being shown by other, in other maps. Yeah, I think obviously a way that your maps are kind of differentiating from the rest is, you know, we've kind of talked about this and you don't necessarily call the territorial changes immediately. You know, I, th- I think you'd, you'd spend a lot of time verifying and making sure that, it's, you know, it's clear that, that there are t- there are changes before you kind of demonstrate that, that on your map. Just quickly, um, I know we're very much <laughs> running out of time. Your maps have been obviously widely reported on and used by journalists. You've recently worked with Reuters to develop an interactive report on developments on the ground over the course of the past four months. With less changes to the map as, you know, as Russia really focuses on eastern Ukraine, what are your plans going forward? I think it's always a struggle to sort of show the changes on the ground when there aren't necessarily changes on the ground. A lot of people sort of, when you look at how the, the general conversation around Ukraine, often it delves into these really small locations and I guess the mood of all the Ukraine watchers depends on who controls this little town compared to before when you were looking at the broad map and worrying if Kiev was going to fall. Now you're worrying if a town of 3,000 people in Luhansk is going to fall. So I think one thing that's often that will hopefully be um, helpful in the future is sort of often more thematic maps, sort of looking at where is being bombarded, where are the hot spots on this front line, because not all the front line is manned the same by both sides. So I think show, trying to explain, I guess, some of the more tactical dynamics of these smaller things, while still keeping in mind the, in many ways, unchanged broader situation is, is sort of the challenge going forward. Great. And I think that the the tactical elements, I think, is so important, obviously, and I look forward to seeing more of your maps. Thanks, Nathan. Thanks. That's a wrap on this episode. This week, you heard conversations with Dr. Alex Bristow, Deputy Director of ASPE's Defence, Strategy and National Security Program, and Primrose Reardon, South China Correspondent at the Financial Times, Barney Graywell, Researcher, and Fergus Ryan, Senior Analyst, with ASPE's International Cyber Policy Centre, and Nathan Brusser, researcher with ASPE's International Cyber Policy Centre. Thanks for listening to Policy, Guns and Money. We'll be back with another episode soon.